Welcome to The Effective Lawyer, a podcast for ambitious attorneys who want to improve their practice. My name is Jack Zinda, and I'll be your host. Hey everyone, Jack Zinda here. Today we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a lawyer later in life. You know, for attorneys that start their legal careers, their second or even third career, it can be challenging, overwhelming, and a little intimidating on where to start and what to do. Today to help us talk through that is one of my favorite attorneys at our firm, Jason Aldridge. He's not only one of our top lawyers here, he's one of the top trial attorneys in Texas. He's been with the firm a little over five years and handles some of our most complex and important cases. Catastrophic injuries and everything from wrongful death, trucking cases, premises liability, and everything in between. Uh, hey, Jason. Good to see you. Hey, Jack. It's great to be here. I love the podcast. Good, man. Well, uh, didn't have to come long for the journey to, to join us today. No. Walked around the corner. Well, not to put you on the spot or embarrass you, but what, what age did you become a lawyer? Um, I'm 47 now, and I've been practicing for almost six years, so 41. So that's a little different than most attorneys' path. Yeah, I was. I stood out in my class, that's for sure. Well, let's start at the beginning. Why don't you tell me a little bit about where you started prior to becoming an attorney? Well, I was born in southern Arizona, like an hour and a half south of Tucson, which is also an hour and a half north of Mexico. I lived in trailer parks. We were kind of poor. Um, I had a bunch of different dads. Uh, my grandfather and my, some of my dads were in the Army. And there was a little Army town. Um, I always just didn't want to be poor and at first that kind of was like well I'll be a doctor or a lawyer because that's the easiest way to not be poor and then after high school I joined the army um, with the promise that it would lead to medical school I had no interest whatsoever in being a doctor I just again didn't want to be poor Um, I had always loved law and order and wanted to grow up to be Jack McCoy and so I went to the army um, and I was playing golf one day and I saw the head pro giving lessons to this beautiful girl and then I saw him playing golf and I thought well maybe maybe being a lawyer or a doctor isn't it so I left when I got out of the army I became a golf pro Um, after that I worked for um, I had a small internship with um, a financial advisor uh, Merrill Lynch I waited tables I was a bartender um, and then eventually I found my way to Vegas and got in the casino business and was really good at it and was succeeding and going places Um, but there was always one regret I always wished that I had that I wasn't somebody that could have gone to law school that I had Um, and my um, my boss at the time was applying to go to law school and hearing him talk about it was like a little stab in the arm and I thought well I don't have eight years I I can't wait eight years to do all that Um, and then eight years later I was walking down the hall and I heard one of the dealers that I supervised saying that all he had to do now was take the bar exam. And I thought, oh my God, everybody around me is living my dream. And literally that was eight years ago. I'd be done right now. So my wife and I at the time, she said, well, just go to school. Just take the first step forward. I didn't have a single college credit. So I rushed to sign up for something so the mood wouldn't pass. Um, I sent 35 emails to 35 professors to try to get in because it was in the middle of December and there's no classes starting, or there are very few. And I got into three classes, um, and that was it. I planned my degree like you can imagine. I took 30 30 credits in one semester because I could stack three, four, and five-week courses. 
And so I had to get permission from the, from the president of the university to do it. And it took me having to go in to show them that I'm never going to be in it any more than five. But um, I got all of the credits to graduate in about two and a half years for my four year. Um, but then I had to wait a year because they, they did something with the transcript and I, I couldn't graduate right away. Um, and then I applied to law school and um, here I am today. I actually was going to be a prosecutor, but at, the process was so long to hire that I really started getting nervous. To be honest, my wife started getting nervous because I wasn't working and it was like, hey, you keep turning down these jobs. What if you don't get that one? And I thought, yeah, what if I don't get Like never in my life was that a thought. Um, and um, maybe I don't know if we want to talk more about how I found Zenda, but once I came here, I knew I knew this was it. I knew that I wasn't I wasn't picking a different or second choice in terms of career. Well, that's that's amazing. So not only uh, law school while working full time, also undergrad as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, baby, and uh, other stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's really impressive. Uh, how's your golf game now? It is absolutely terrible <laughs> but it is I'm okay with that it's it's I'm still good enough that everyone can tell I was good before and I'm still good enough to be better than most of the people I play with but uh, I'll take the trade-off well you know backing up a little bit I find people that have a lot of good life experiences or interesting life experiences make the best trial lawyers what part of your career, can you think of examples where you took some of the skills that you learned at those different parts and applied them to what you do now? Yeah, for sure. Because, and I've tried to help a lot of the new attorneys um, within the firm on how to uh, connect or how to, how to sign a new client, for example. Um, I think every job is sales to some extent, right? And if you've ever waited tables and you got to try to make five people happy, um, or you've sold, I also sold cars for a while. If you've ever done that, then you learn how to listen um, and you learn that people will tell you what they want and they'll tell you what's important. And I don't think there's any one job, but there is the culmination of needing to connect with a variety of people um, that has definitely served me well to this point. And when you worked at the casinos, what'd you do there? So I was a pit boss. Um, so casino, that job is probably the only one where you tell someone what you do and they're like, they have that quick imagination and it actually kind of is that, you know, like if all the lawyers that are going to listen and you tell your friend you're a lawyer and they think it's one thing and it's not. So I was a pit, it's called a pit boss, a dual rate, which means that you can serve in either position. You're sort of bracketing a promotion. And so I would supervise, uh, near the end and for the last seven years, high limit gambling. And so whatever you it was a lot of uh, famous people and a lot of really, really rich people. Um, unbelievable stories. Definitely I could fill two or three days and no one will be. After that, I'm out. But I can <laughs> fill a couple of days with some stories that people tend to love. Well, that must have been interesting dealing with both the people you're supervising as the pit boss and also really high net worth people who maybe aren't in the best mood or feeling great when they're talking to you yeah they are not nobody wins so uh they are they are typically not so depending on the nature of the customer sometimes the job was you know a lot of the big money would be chinese players and they're they didn't speak english and i didn't speak chinese um but the but the the game had a language and you just sort of kept the room happy 
uh, not happy because they're losing, but um, you casinos would, happy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've seen the casino nervous. That's for sure. But but it all plays out in the end. But you have to keep you have to make sure we don't make a mistake because those are very very expensive. You have to make sure that the player that the game that you take care of the player within the limits of the rules. And um, I mean, if you think about it, we've had I've supervised players making a million dollar bet. So a million dollars, as fast as we can deal the cards, that's a million, a million, a million, a million, a million. And you don't think of how long your mortgage takes and how much paperwork's involved. Um, and not everyone's got a million dollar mortgage. So it's pretty high pressure, but it was a blast. I, I never would have left the job for the job. Well, just hearing you talk, there's several things that I think correlate to what it means to be a good trotler. One is high pressure and moving quickly, but having to be accurate. Uh, I think in our profession, especially when you're trying a case, taking it at deposition or in a hearing, you have to be quick on your feet, but you also have to be accurate. If you misstate the law, that can have really devastating consequences. I'm sure similarly, if you pay out $2 million instead of $1.5, that can have some problems as well. It sure can. It can have you watching a whole different kind of game. Well, tell me back. All right, so you're doing well as a pit boss. You have a pretty successful career. And you make that decision to go to law school. Was that a tough decision? No, I think it might have been a tough decision what to do with that degree when it was done because I enjoyed the casino and they had a legal department um, and I wasn't sure what I would do with it. Uh, The company helped. Um, We had layoffs. I didn't get laid off, but there was some instability because of the housing market crash. and uh, it became what, what actually made the decision the easiest was uh, having a kid. And we didn't want our daughter growing up in Vegas. The schools are, um, are, the city is overflowed, so the schools are under a lot of pressure. There was 30 kids in her class kind of thing, so, or would have been. And she asked uh, my wife, Mommy, how come those girls aren't wearing clothes on that billboard? <laughs> and we both thought, all right, I think it's time to live somewhere else. <laughs> all right, so you, you have a child. Uh, you're married, you're working. How did you balance your schedule going to law school and doing with all those other things? I know a lot of people that can be intimidating trying to figure out how I'm even going to get started doing that. Yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about is in terms of advice is my school. So UNLV is where I went and that's in Vegas and they have a night and a day program. And the night program is obviously meant for people like me who are going to work as well. Um, but I would give some hard thought as to which one you go to because to me, school was just the thing that was in the way or it was a necessary box to tick um, to get a job. And so there was more flexibility in terms of picking my classes uh, if I took the day program. And so, um, and I did. And I also got done a full semester faster than I would have on the night program. So um, not everybody's going to be able to find a job at night. Obviously, the casino made that easy. But um, that's what I did. So I'd work from 7 at night to 4 in the morning and then sleep a couple hours and then go to school and then come home and sleep an hour or two and then go to work. Um, You're making this sound so easy. Yeah. So (laughs) I was just tired for four years. I remember there was a long stretch where I I would wake up to go to work on Wednesday and I would sleep again on Friday. But it was worth it, that's for sure. And I found little ways um, that hopefully will be helpful to somebody face, making the same choice to make it easier um, 
just as a quick example, uh, there's a website called oea.org, and it's the um, audio recordings of the oral arguments at the Supreme Court. And I found that not as fast as I wish I had, but I had an hour commute to school and back, and then to work and back, so that's four hours almost every day in my car, and so I could download the cases that we were studying in con law and listen to the actual oral arguments, which, I mean, when you think about it, you're hearing the 11 most knowledgeable people talk about a case, um, but a tiny little funny story, if you'll indulge me, is that I listened to one of these cases, and I just thought, man, I know this case so inside and out. I heard them argue about it. I was just ready, and I sat in the front row, and I stared at my professor, like daring him to call on me, and it worked, and he did, <laughs> and he just started digging into me on this case, and uh, I was just firing back everything, and I thought, you met your match today, man, and he gets to the bottom, and he goes, or he gets to the, laid into it, and he says, um, well, where was the, uh, where was the injury? And I said, I started looking at my notes, and he goes, he goes, it shouldn't be that hard. And I said, well, if you have my notes, it is, because I don't have it. And he goes, well, it's not a trick question. And uh, he said it was in Vegas. And I was like, that literally is a trick question. And they didn't talk about that at the Supreme Court. So lesson learned, you can't rely only on that. But it was really helpful for somebody that spent four hours a day in their class. Well, car. you must have had to have been, and I actually, when you talk about uh, studying during your commute, I found that really helpful as well because I was living about 45 minutes to an hour away from law school my first semester, and I really made good use of listening to audio lectures. Uh, and then my girlfriend at the time, now wife, lived in Houston, and uh, I used to commute to see her quite a bit, so I try to fill that time with studying. Mm-hmm. So I think one tip is you know try to fill that dead time that you have with getting ahead and really knowing uh, getting ahead and studying. You know, I find that people that go to law school later in life tend to do better because they treat it more like a job. Did you, was that your experience? For sure. Um, I, I didn't have, I mean, aside from the obvious stuff, like I, I didn't have the ability to participate in the extracurriculars and the, the clubs and the, you know, the fun part of law school, it was just work. Um, and I just put in the work. Um, but I definitely think that you've you already know what it took to be there and uh i mean most of the kids in law school are they're they're performers they're great people they did great but if you're there later in life you you've already worked to get there you know what i mean so um and our our daughter was born um i left between classes to go uh watch her at preschool because it was such a traumatic event to leave her at preschool and i remember leaving law school class to go, you know, see if she was okay. Um, I wasn't the only older person or parent, but it definitely makes you take it more serious. Yeah, I remember there was uh, one of my classmates had two kids and was pregnant during practice court at Baylor. And uh, when I was thinking about her, I was like, she has it so much harder than I have. So anytime I found myself complaining, I I just thought about how much more she had to juggle than I did. Yeah. I tried to play that card once with the professor, and it went real flat real quick. So then I thought, all right, well, I better get this together and focus. Well, what about, all right, so you graduate from law school, and how did you start figuring out what you wanted to do next? I was a huge Law & Order fan as well, um, and originally wanted to be a prosecutor before I found uh, personal injury law, but where did you start looking? How did you end up in Texas? So we made a short list of cities that we'd want to live in. Um, neither of us wanted, my wife and I, we didn't want to live in Vegas. 
and uh, Austin was on the list. We had some some personal reasons that made it an option. Um, I was pretty sure I would become friends with Lance Armstrong and we'd ride our bikes together if we lived <laughs> in the same town. Uh, that didn't turn out to, to happen, but we came here to visit and it was this bizarre weekend of like bliss where there was a pumpkin patch at Marble Falls and uh, ACL and there was an ice cream social in my friend's neighborhood. And so it was like, oh my God, this is where you gotta go to raise a kid. Um, as far as jobs go, one of the other things that makes made law school harder or you could say more efficient was that I didn't have the luxury of getting summer jobs um, like with law firms like most of the kids would do because I couldn't do that because I had a job that I had to have um, I did internships for credit and so I did those all with the aim of being a prosecutor Um, and so I came out here the family and I took a pretty big leap and I applied to get an internship with the Travis County District Attorney's Office um, while we lived in Vegas and I got it so I took eight month, eight weeks off from my job and came out here uh, by myself and did that internship and I loved it and they wanted to hire me but you have to start at the County Prosecutor's Office and I was down to the last two people and of course like every law student I was, I was sure I'd get the job but it just was going to take a long time so we happened to be um, the rental, the house that we rented in Austin was geographically close to to your firm and I just kept seeing it on the website and every time I'd look there was another office and there was another attorney Um, I studied you guys and I just thought man I I don't I can't get it wrong I'm too old I can't work somewhere for three years and find out oh my god I worked for that person Um, and so when I did finally beat you guys down enough to get an interview I knew this was it and it didn't matter to me what kind of law now I love it uh, but it wasn't about the law, it was about the firm. That's great. When I remember when you applied, uh, I have a rule at my firm, if someone applies in person, we give them an interview. Uh, and Jason dropped off his resume in person, and I think that's what got your foot in the door. Yeah, well, I, it was either that or the 800 emails, the LinkedIn <laughs> messages. I was leaving that part out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just took it because, you know, you're if you put yourself in the mix with these college kids it's gonna it's just hard to stand out and you got to get in front of somebody if you're gonna have for me that was my best bet was to to meet someone that was gonna make the decision and show that I was different than my resume a hundred percent and I think that persistence is something that a lot of law students or people out of law school don't pay attention to and what I always tell people when they're looking for a job either as an attorney or anything else pick the two to three jobs you really want and blow them out of the water with your resume, with your cover letter, reach out to people that are associated with the company, opposed to throwing a scattershot approach and applying to you know 80 different places. I think your success rate goes way up and you end up with a place you really want to opposed to a place you just accidentally end up at. Yeah, for sure. Um, and honestly, I had applied, it was like 3 a.m. and I was looking at the job listings and a firm here in Austin that does PI listed a job and they said if you want to be a trial attorney you don't need any experience you make $150,000 a year um, anyone can apply and I sent my resume in instantly I got up I showered I shaved I put on a suit and I went and waited for them to unlock the front door and I asked if I could speak with the namesake 
And they said, well, is he expecting you? No, he's not. I waited a few hours and he couldn't see me, so I left. I came back every day for five days and not one time did one person ever speak to me except the receptionist. And I just thought, I don't want to work here. I mean, if that's, you wouldn't even come out and say, all right, I get it, we're not hiring or anything like that. So, um, and then, you know, I've done some crazy stuff too to figure out if I was going to work at the right place. I think I've shared with you, I walked the parking lot to make sure, you know, I don't want to work I had a certain life that I wanted to achieve, and if the people that are ahead of me aren't achieving it, then that speaks to it. You know, I've told people stories about um, the success of the attorneys in front of me at this firm, um, but I looked to where they lived. Do they live in nice neighborhoods? Do they have a nice car? Do they win cases? Are they respected? Um, and I agree. Find the place you want and get it. Well, and if you're looking to go into a consumer-based law firm as well, check out the reviews of the clients because that really emanates into the whole practice of the firm. And a law firm that has a lot of angry clients is probably missing the boat on something. doesn't mean they're bad lawyers, but something's a little off with their practice potentially. For sure. Uh, get to know the other attorneys that work there. Look at their resumes. Is that something that you want to line up your career with? And does that match up? Um, and I remember when you started at the firm, I was so impressed with how quickly you were able to deal with clients. And I think if you're going into a, uh, a practice where you have to deal with either business clients or consumer clients, having that experience is really helpful. I remember the first week you worked here, I said, this person is going to be able to sign up any case that comes in the door. He may not know what he's talking about at first, <laughs> but he'll get it signed up. <laughs> Versus, you know, you hire someone who's top in their class from a top five law school, they're not going to have those life experiences to relate to someone. Yeah, and when you, tr and you know, that's like probably the better tip for people that are trying to, to relate to somebody. That person still has something in common with the guy or the girl that's, that's the potential client. The problem is they rarely look for that commonality. And um, really, you don't have to convince anyone. You just have to listen to listen honestly right um, I learned that selling cars that uh, the best car salesmen didn't really talk they just listened and the worst ones just yammered away on stuff um, yeah I, I just think you find that commonality and it, and then it's genuine and if you if it's not I've yet to meet somebody who you couldn't tell was forcing it or was pretending even really kind people that are doing it genuinely and want to connect when it's not real, it's, you know, like you'll see somebody saying howdy or y'all when it's not natural to them. Um, you know they're trying and it's a good heart, but yeah, you've got to find the connection and, and just go with that. I really, and empathy is really important. I mean, putting yourself in the person's shoes, what are they thinking about? What are they going through? And I think for Vore Dyer, jury selection, those skill sets really apply across disciplines, whether it's law or somewhere else, being able to relate to people and listen uh, and listen to their concerns. And I really do think a lot of what we do is is selling. We're you know trying to give our clients the best advocacy we can about their case, trying to explain to a client why they should hire our firm, trying to convince an adjuster why they should pay out on a claim, or why a defense attorney why they should pay out on a case. Uh, and all of it comes back to making good arguments, understanding what people's motivations are, and listening to their concerns. Mm -hmm. And when you say Vordire, that reminds me of um, giving golf lessons and I, I think I was pretty good at that where because I could take or I would look for something they, they already knew how to do physically like bowl or go fishing or something and if you could um, if you could make an analogy of that 
to where they could they would know that feeling of the part of the golf swing you were trying to tell them, uh, it would click. And I think that that applies to just about everything, right? In Vordire, if you've got somebody that had a bad wreck and they had a terrible experience, you're not going to convince them that their experience was good, but you find the way that you can analogize their experience to what you're selling in a convincing way, um, and you could win them over, I think. Well, and one thing I've been really impressed with your career is, you know, you've really gotten to where most 15, 20-year attorneys are at in five years. And I always use you as the poster child of the example of someone who sits down and is determined can really accelerate their growth. So what sort of tactics or things did you do to help accelerate your growth more quickly than maybe other lawyers? Um, I didn't wait for information to, to find me. Um, I was pretty hard on myself. You know, that's something we've joked about where I punish myself before, you know, I get a chance to be punished. But um, active trying to learn, you know, I think a lot of the younger attorneys will need to see something three or four times, and then it's sort of um, learned through rep- repetition rather than seeing it and wanting to ask questions. And honestly, that makes I, I had meant to make sure I said that. The most important thing to me is um, is having some humility. Uh, I remember being here early, and I was next to an attorney who'd been practicing four or five years, but we were new at the same time. And one of the senior attorneys asked, did we know what subrogation meant? And I, th- I thought, I have no idea what that means. And I could tell neither did the other attorney. But, <laughs> but they rambled off some answer, and I thought, you're just afraid to say you don't know what it is. And this person doesn't expect us to know what it is. And I find that that has been um, to my benefit, is being willing to say I don't know it, and I want to know it, and then try to learn it. Um, rather than pretending. I see a lot of people struggle for a while because they just won't admit they don't know what they're doing. Um, I can. I think that's a great point. And honestly, I find that you get a lot more autonomy more, the more quickly you can establish you're going to speak up if you don't know the answer. Uh, not knowing what you don't know is critical to being successful as a lawyer because unless you have a photographic memory, it's really hard to memorize the right answer to every question that you're going to come across. But as you get more experience, you learn where to find the answer. Um, what about, you know, I've also been really impressed with how you set goals and then go after them and then achieve them. First, when you came to our firm, how did you go about setting about the goals that you wanted to accomplish? Um, well, my goals were, were um, black and white, and they were, honestly, I think the structure of the firm helped the most part with that because I'm not sure I would have been as structured goal-wise, but for the fact that we are here and you push us out of our comfort zone a lot, um, which has really been key to my progress. If anything, honestly, that one I'd defer to you because so many times I was comfortable and you pushed outside of that and then it led to the next next level. But knowing what you want, um, and if you may remember, I came to you and told you what I wanted and I wasn't asking for it. I just asked, how do I get there? What's the plan? What do I need to do to get to this point in my career? And what do I need to do to get to the next point? Um, And I think it kind of goes right back to the same thing, right? If you won't ask, uh, you won't know and you're guessing. And can you imagine you spend a year trying to do what it takes to do, you know, the next thing and you were wrong? A hundred percent. And I think a lot of people um, don't take the time to ask that question. I can count on one hand how many attorneys have approached me and said, hey, here's where I want to get to career-wise. How do I get there? And I remember that conversation. We sat down, we pulled out a, a piece of paper, and we 
wrote out, okay, here's where you want to be six months from now, a year from now, 18 months from now, and two years from now. Um, and also, you've been really aggressive on working on different case types and really developing your knowledge base there. And you can tell you do the homework of researching an issue when a case comes across your desk um, and really developing that skill set of learning what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, of course, our you know everybody's not going to have the, the structure at our firm, but um, I've tried to tell people you're never, ever, ever going to be told no, you can't do work that I don't want to do. And so find a part of the case that the person above you doesn't want to do and do that. Um, nobody's ever going to stop you from learning or, uh, and helping. And so I, I think I saw some people have the sort of all or nothing attitude where, you know, I can't quite handle this wrongful death uh, trucking case, so I'm out. Well, you can't, but you can handle going to the inspection and you can sit in and watch the depots or you could read the depot transcripts um, or you could just find something that you can be a part of and then the next time a little more and the next time a little more. Um, that's how I tried to do it. Well, and that's, I think that's great. You know, take up space, volunteer to do things. I mean, if there's a deposition the day before Thanksgiving, say, hey, I'll take that one. I guarantee you someone in your law firm is going to say, great, go take that deposition inspections if you're working at a personal injury firm is another area where you can get a lot of good experience and before you know it people are going to say hey you know jason why don't we give him this case because he's always volunteering he did a great job for me on that task or assignment and i can really rely on his work product yeah and if you're at a place where where collaboration is encouraged i mean it still goes back to that right when you're in a big group you know, our, our, our meetings that we would have, the PI meetings, where we might whiteboard a case. Um, I can remember speaking up. I can remember speaking up and later thinking, man, I wish I hadn't said that. But I can also remember many times saying something, um, having an idea that got used. And after the meeting, hearing from some of the people, uh, well, everybody's younger than me, but some of the people newer than me that would say, oh, I was afraid to say something. And it was, you know, I mean, there's all these great minds. Uh, use them collectively and speak up. Well, tell me, um, are there any other tips or tactics you want to leave with uh, other attorneys that may be in similar boat as you? Yeah, if you're thinking, I was trying to sort of brainstorm on some ideas for um, going to college at a much uh, at an advanced age, um, and one of them you touched with about applying. I had said, apply where you want to go. Um, one of the things I knew I was going to go to UNLV because I couldn't quit my job and we couldn't move. Um, I, I knew what the target, what the score was to get in, what the GPA was to get in, and I made sure that I got in there. I applied at other places because I have an ego and I wanted to have, I wanted to say I could have gone to some of these other places, but know where you want to go. Um, negotiate your offer. <clears throat> um, a friend of a friend had given me this book about first year law school, and in it it had said that you could negotiate your scholarship. Um, and I did. I went in, and it was the most terrifying experience in my life and I felt embarrassed afterwards but it worked it was a $20,000 move Um, borrow as little as possible Um, and then uh, the OEA.org was one and then what I did was I took the LSAT um, the practice test untimed and figured out where my weaknesses were because I couldn't take the LSAT course Um, I could afford it because I was working but it was a lot of time and I just couldn't do it so I figured out what part of the LSAT I was weakest on, and I just hired a tutor to focus exclusively on that portion. It was less than the full class would have cost, 
um, and it got me much higher score than I had to have to get in. Um, and then make friends who are good at notes or good at the thing that you're not um, and pick wisely for a study group because I was kind of a loner because of my situation, but I made four or five friends who were good at school and took it serious and then we'd study. You know, when it came time for finals, I would take some time off, a couple of days off, and do a, a study group. Um, and that's how I survived law school. That's great. Well, and if anyone wanted to reach out to you to ask questions, how could they get a hold of you? Jason at Zendalaw.com. Um, I, if you want to send me an email, I'm happy to share anything I can to help. Great. Well, Jason, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you spending so much time here. And uh, I got a lot out of this, and I'm sure a lot of other people did as well. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. It was a blast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Effective Lawyer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate it five stars and leave us a review. To get notified about new episodes that are upcoming or have been released, go to zdfirm.com slash podcast sign up for our mailing list.